Imagine a world where everyone is free and happy. There's constant warmth and sunshine, but no drought. No one is hungry, yet no one is overweight. Peace and plenty are the norm in this world instead of war and famine. Love is in the air. The rivers are made of chocolate and every open field teems with puppies. Isn't that a nice thought? Forget everything I just said. Imagine instead a world of darkness, death, and destruction. Blood is everywhere. Chaos reigns eternal. And no matter where you look, you're being hunted by zombies, disease, aliens, your worst nightmares. Life is just a desperate struggle for survival. And there is no clean end in sight. Prepare to die a painful death. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for today, kids. Open your math books to page six. Today, we're learning about subtraction. Any questions? Welcome to the Supply and Demand Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Greg. Um, I have with me my several other um, equally qualified and perhaps even um, better sounding uh, co-hosts. I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm happy to be here. I'm not sure if I sound as good as, as Greg, but uh, we'll, uh, we'll see how this podcast unfolds. Um, Steven, I'm, you know, pretty average sounding if I do say so myself. Hey folks, I'm Mike. Um, I sound fantastic. Yeah, you do Mike. And thank, and thanks for doing that. Um, that lovely introduction. Um, there was, uh, I think that, that it opens up a lot of possibilities for our topic today, which in case you did not understand is post-apocalyptic fiction. That's what we're talking about today. Um, this is a topic that I thought of, I didn't come up with post-apocalyptic fiction. I just want to be clear about that, but I thought of this topic. I thought it'd be a good thing to talk about on the podcast when actually, when I was reading, um, the stand by Stephen King, and I will talk about that later. Um, but that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, so, uh, the first thing I want to say though, is it's different from dystopian fiction. I think we could do a whole different, an entire podcast on dystopian fiction, things like 1984 by George Orwell, Brave New World, that sort of thing. Those are, those are um, definitely related and a lot, there's a lot of overlap between post-apocalyptic fiction and uh, dystopian fiction, um, especially I think when we get to the road, which Nate read, but we'll get to that later. <clears throat> but um, I think that's a separate topic and I, I want to explore this other one more fully first. Um, so for the, for the listeners out there who are just dying to know what's going on in this podcast, um, what happened was when I was coming up, when I was thinking about this topic, I decided to assign some homework to my fellow co-hosts. Um, so everyone had a month to, about a month to either read uh, uh, some, some book or watch a movie or watch a TV show or uh, play a video game. Um, there's, there's some overlap there. Some, some people did more than one. Um, and now we're going to get together and talk about our reactions to those uh, pieces of media, as I guess I'm going to call them, just for lack of a more capacious term. Um, so I just want to explain what everyone read or 
uh, or watched or whatever. So Nate, who was the, the first, the first person who introduced himself be, uh, besides me, Nate read the road by Cormac McCarthy. Nate, did that one, do you know if that won a Pulitzer prize or something similar? I think it did. Pretty sure it did. So it's some, it won some sort of major uh, book award, possibly a Pulitzer, although maybe we can, um, it may have been the national book award, but I will fact. Mike, you want to do some fact checking on that? Mm -hmm. Thanks man. Um, so Nate read the road. Uh, he also read, he also watched the movie Mad Max Fury Road, which until about 15 minutes ago, I did not even notice that, uh, both titles have the word road in it. So two two road themed pieces of, of fiction. Yep. Um, Stephen, uh, Stephen read the, the book World War Z uh, by Stephen. What's the guy's name? Max, Max Brooks. Max Brooks. And then Stephen also did some extra credit homework assignments. He watched the movie World War Z and he watched the movie The Book of Eli, correct? Yep. Yep. Okay. So, um, and is that with Will Smith? Uh, Denzel Washington is the main character in The Book of Eli. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so, uh, Mike. Mike was our next contestant. He um, he played The Last of Us, which is a video game, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, is his background right now on the Zoom call. Is that, is that right, Mike? That is right. Yeah, I think this is a screenshot from the original game. Might be from one of the remasters. There's been a couple of iterations upon the original. I, I got to ask, is that Boston? Do you know? It kind of vaguely reminds me of the area, but it I does believe, start in Boston. Yeah, I, I believe this would be a screenshot from the opening sequence that takes place in boston at least when things once things kind of go south but uh we can dig into setting uh to come yeah uh, my um my my english students would 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 dread talking about the setting but mike mike you you've graduated high school and college and so you you know that these things can be applied to the real world such as this mike did you also watch or you've watched the walking dead before yeah so I, I i went back and i kind of um i reflected on what i what i think is the best of the walking dead i think the, the walking dead is i believe 11 seasons strong at this point and i'm not as well versed in the latter half of the series really uh up to a certain point and there, there's personal personal reasons for that um just kind of me losing interest um but i think the first one to you know seasons one through four or five really capture i think a an iconic moments in post post apocalyptic genre um that are worth reflecting on so i went back and looked at those nice um yeah post apocalyptic is not exactly does not roll off the tongue that easily not, so it's not great we'll, no. we will probably be stumbling over that this whole this whole episode and then finally, me, um, as I mentioned earlier, I read The Stand by Stephen King. Um, and then I also assigned myself to watch A Quiet Place, uh, which was a, was a movie with, um, with, with John Krasinski, or as I like to call him, Jim Krasinski. Um, that's a dumb office joke. Um, but in my infinite idiocy, I, uh, I, I, did not, I did not watch it. So I'm going to be confining my analysis um, to the stand which to be fair uh is is a big book and there's a lot to talk about in it so okay so one more final piece of housekeeping before we get started um so this episode uh 
don't know if we mentioned this in the pilot episode, but each podcast is going to be hosted by someone different sort of, um, and planned by someone different. So I'm planning this one, I'm hosting this one, and I'm going to sort of act as an interviewer of everybody, or you can sort of imagine that the four of us, instead of sitting in our, in our rooms, uh, separately are together at some sort of panel at maybe, oh, I don't know, a post-apocalyptic, um, conference or, um, a podcasting, uh, bonanza or, or, um, Palooza. Um, and so what's going to happen is I'm going to interview the boys. That's, that's the three, uh, the three boys that I'm talking to men. Um, and we're going to just talk about the, the, we're just going to talk about post-apocalyptic stuff. Is but, everyone ready? But we can mutiny if we need. Yes. Mutinies may occur. Maybe they, more they, than one. They, you know, the mutiny is a big part of post-apocalyptic, uh, society. So you never know. That's, That's true. Right. Okay. So to kick it off, we're going to do, everyone's going to do a brief. I'm going to try to, hopefully everyone can, can maintain it a one to three minute, uh, um, uh, guideline, I guess. So everyone's going to do a summary of each piece of media consumed. So we're going to start with drum roll, please. Just kidding. Uh, Mike, Mike, so why don't you, why don't you talk about the last of us and, uh, it's somewhat related to the walking dead. So you can maybe spin that in a little bit too. So just for the last of us, give us a, give us an overview of the plot, what happens. um, Mm -hmm. And then you can, you can say some more stuff about that if you'd like. Okay. uh, Yeah. I'll try, I'll try to do my, my best to not assuming our, our audience is not only uh, not, not predominantly gamers and, and might find interest in playing this game. I'll, I'll try to be kind of, vague-ish about how I how I share out details. I will say if you are a gamer, chances are you've played this game because it's widely known to be one of the best video games of certainly our generation, if not all time. Um, but basically, The Last of Us is a story about uh, an, an older man named Joel who um, who is present in 2013 when a fungal mutation leads to a uh, a viral outbreak of infected hosts that essentially mimic zombies and uh, kind of begins to take over and destroy society as is known. At that point, um, Joel <clears throat> encounters immediate personal tragedy um, at the onset of of the uh, apocalypse and uh, is is largely left jaded by that and, and survives as a kind of smuggler, kind of uh, road traveler, moving around and drifting as post-apocalyptic people do um, until he's given an assignment to watch over um, this young girl by the name of Ellie, who provides a great source of hope both for Joel personally and um, I won't give away <laughs> to what extent this is the case, but um, to the larger uh, world around them as they know it. Um, so it, it's basically a, a, a story within that larger post-apocalyptic scene of of the relationship between Joel and Ellie. Um, Joel kind of finding meaning, uh, kind of learning what it means to, to exist um, beyond his tragedy uh, in a world that otherwise seems like it has no meaning um, and kind of redefining that. And, and a lot of questions posed about, um, you know, in a post-apocalyptic world, uh, 
like who is the good guy and 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 who is the bad guy and and how far would you go to um to kind of protect your version of of those two kind of um polarities so yeah that's that's probably the best i could do to describe that in in general terms uh the last of i mean uh, the walking dead is is somewhat similar it's it's the story of really the first four seasons and maybe a little bit beyond that i forget the exact um kind of buffer there of a father and son um of of rick grimes and his son carl uh again being thrown into the zombie apocalypse <laughs> more traditionally speaking um i think they're known as walkers or something they, they kind of have a different sort of uh all these all these mediums as you'll see have kind of different takes on the same concept right but um <clears throat> essentially the two of them father and a son young son at the beginning uh are are attempting to move on and 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 construct some sense of normalcy as they begin to understand like what it means to live a functioning life and and indeed there are many attempts in the walking dead to recreate versions of society in different ways um and yeah, I think that one is more so a, a, a view into how people change, how people that you know might change. Um, you know, what would you do? Um, how would you behave to to save yourself or to save those around you? What kind of uh, darkness might you embrace in order to claim to power when when traditional societal structures begin to collapse? A lot of themes that are really focused on relationships, <clears throat> and I think for both of these. Uh, for both of these works, which both in their in their moment were hugely celebrated, um, found success because they focused on uh, the story of the characters trying to exist within the world rather than um, the kind of chaos and gore and and calamity. And that certainly exists in both of these, but <clears throat> um, it was it was definitely much more of an attempt in, in both of these to try to humanize uh, the characters and the stories within. Uh, within the the terrible worlds around them and i think that i found uh meaning and enjoyment in, in both of these uh both of these pieces of art personally for for that exact reason um you fall for the characters you fall for their stories and you tend to overlook their flaws i think um depending on uh you know a, a lot of people die by the hands of, of these characters right but I, i've probably gone over three minutes here but uh you you start to have to ask yourself tough questions when you look at these characters and you think about um, whether they're justified to protect the people that you've grown to love um, and that you know that they care about um, in the post-apocalyptic world. Mike, that was very well said. Um, I like I like what you talked about with I guess they were both when when you mentioned um, about uh, recreating society. Um, and that's something that I think it definitely comes up in the stand and I'm sure it comes up in um, some of the other stuff that, that you guys read. So I think that's a really interesting and important um, part of this piece of this um, genre is trying to figure out how to recreate society um, after it's all fallen and after there's vines growing on all the buildings and, and, um, and, and stuff like that. So it's just, just kind of interesting. Um, okay. Does anybody, does anybody have, Oh, before we move on, actually, there's a, I think everyone's probably seen this, but there's um, The Last of Us is being made into a show on HBO. Right. Um, Steven, did, did you want to 
what, what did what were your reactions to that i'm just excitement i mean i'm a big fan of the last of us both the first and the second although i mean people have had their mixed reviews of the second game but yeah i mean uh pedro pascal i believe is playing joel yeah that's right yeah okay and then yeah. there is a the uh, ellie yeah. i don't know her name is I, um, I don't know her name either but she was she was played a big role in game of thrones toward i believe the kind of middle to end of the series she was the young leader of one of the families right right um, yeah and, and was just kind of celebrated for her like energy and her power and ellie is very much this like super outspoken confident character um for being so young uh, amid you know this world of terrible people and i think she really embodies that well yeah it's gonna be great yeah so some some background for the listeners um when we all lived together in our senior year of college um we sort of did a group uh playthrough i guess you might call it of the second last of us game um and it was entertaining and very um like surprisingly emotional and uh really well done it was was very long it was much longer than i expected i think it's significantly longer than the first game in the series um at least that's my memory but yeah that was definitely a really fun shared experience we had going through that and um i remember there was a couple the end of the game i think we played in one or two nights we really like did a long session to get through that i'm not going to spoil it I, I, i don't even the ending would be so out of context for the listeners. I don't even think it would be a spoiler, but that sort of kind of after epilogue sequence, um, after like the game could be over, but Ellie goes for one last adventure. I remember that being quite the, quite the wild ride to go on. Yeah. I think the interesting, like without, without spoiling it again, too much, the, the second last of us was, was a lot less unified and it's or, or the critical reception of, of, of the last of us two is not as, as unified in its positivity compared to the first one. I think like a big, there, there are a couple of reasons for that that we can't really get into, but I think one of the, one of the things that seems to really irk people and I still have conversations with people about this game. And, and this is something they always bring up is the last of us does something pretty daring in that it allows you to play as the main villain in the game. And I'll, I'll leave it at that. The sequel. Uh, yeah, the sequel. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. Hopefully, yeah, the last was two. Thanks, Nate. Um, and I, 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 won't, I won't say any more than that. Um, that's already saying a lot. And I'm sorry for that. But um, it's really interesting because you see the havoc that a character wreaks <clears throat> upon the characters and, and the people that you've come to know all throughout the first you know, one and, you know, a little bit more one and change games, right? And then you have to then kind of embody that and, and commit to that character emotionally in the same way that you did Joel and Ellie and, and, and so much of the, so much of the, and I won't say, again, I won't, I won't touch on what that means for our characters. I, I won't, I won't spell out their fates here, but um, yeah, I mean, part of the, the, the success of the first game was, was as I think is the theme between these two uh, pieces of, of media that I worked, like I, I, I read and, and kind of was exposed to here, um, watched and played, um, was it, it was all about the relationships in it. So you fall in love with, with Joel and Ellie and their relationship and um, you, you're kind of challenged to try to do the same and, and, and have empathy for the person that's tearing everything up. And I, I just think it's a really interesting and unique 
narrative device to be introduced to a game. Certainly, I've never played a game that that goes that far uh, to try to make you think differently about the bad guy. Yeah, I just real quick. I think a big theme we're going to see in all of the things that we read, watched, or played is going to be how blurry the line between good and evil can get once society starts to crumble and people are sort of on a fight or flight instinct. Well put, Stephen. All right. Um, unless anyone has any objections, I'd say we move on to Nate. And Nate read uh, The Road and watched Mad Max Fury Road. So, Nate, you can take those in any order you want, um, but give us a brief overview of each, if you will. Yeah, sure. Um, I'm going to start with Mad Max. Um, I just watched this on Friday night, so it's very vivid in my memory, and I think it's um, maybe simpler to to summarize. I will just say first, I really enjoyed watching it. It was um, I had no idea what to expect. I have never seen a Mad Max. I I'd really I wasn't aware of the critical acclaim that this movie had. I I didn't know that it was so highly regarded and highly rated, and um, I only saw those reviews afterwards, and I understood why um in, in some ways i thought the movie sort of my weird my way of summarizing my experience in the movie is it sort of feels like a four hour long action movie that you're watching on 2x speed like there's just so much stuff that happens constantly um but it's uh, it's a story about uh mad max he's a sort of a rogue in the, at least in this movie there's not much on his backstory um he gets caught up and imprisoned by this, um, I guess, dystopian post-apocalyptic um, cult tribe that controls a group of survivors um, from the apocalypse by, um, they, they basically, <clears throat> they have an access to water in a very arid and um, bleak landscape post-apocalyptic landscape they have this water source and growing plants and um the very corrupt monarch of the society chooses to um basically release the water in very um small and um pitiful intervals and yeah they basically just run this very uh this very scary and um impoverished society that's run by this um religious leader who they sort of worship even though he's very clearly um oppressing uh this this class of of uh yeah very impoverished survivors uh but they have they they're very they have a very zealous religious worship of him as well um anyway so mad mac gets imprisoned by these guys and they, they literally are using Mad Max and other prisoners as, as like a IV bag to, um, um, I, I guess I don't really know why, but to get blood from. Um, so they're just using him as a, an object until he dies. And in the, the movie shows Mad Max escape in his unlikely alliance with a, a member of this corrupt society gone rogue as they um, try to 
outrun and outlast the corrupt um evil people who are chasing them and it that sort of it's all it's like really like an hour and a half long chase sequence is most of the movie and it's um i'm not going to give away much about how it ends or the um the the characters but uh, it's a really wild ride and it's really visually um impressive and the, the just the cinematography of it is really impressive as well um and there's also some really cool post-apocalyptic imagery, I would say, of them. They make these like crazy war vehicles out of like tons of old cars and um, stuff put together. And um, the, there's like this, uh, they're like army, they're army um, band almost that's um, like giving them uh, like they're, they're equivalent of a military bugler is this crazy guy with an electric guitar just like playing rock music on a giant speaker as like the war machines go out and it's it's like so cool to like have that mixed with all these crazy souped up old cars turned into tanks and um anyway it's it's a very fun ride and it's it paints a very bleak um image of the apocalypse where um and this is something i'm going to get into in this um I guess it's a good segue into the road and it also is a good segue from the last of us and specifically the last of us part two um i think one um through line between all these works of fiction is the rise of a cult-like group and the rise of this like um a mob almost a mob mentality cult-like group that to survive the apocalypse you must band together um and maybe um throw some throw some of your old world morals aside and that's clearly shown in um fury road i in um in the last of us part two there's sort of a a cult-like group that uh is one of the major political players of that universe um and in the road which i'll just kind of segue into there's, there's, you get to see a glimpse. You really don't get to learn much about them. And I think that's what's really intriguing about it. But there's a glimpse a couple times in the road of this band of cannibalistic, um, this pack of cannibalistic people who wear red scarves and they march together through the wasteland and they're really scary. Um, and they're kind of known as the bad guys to the uh, main characters of the road. Um, so yeah, so anyway, um, I thought that was an interesting thing and maybe we can delve into this more later, but that these works of fiction, they suggest that in addition to all of the hardship of the apocalypse, there's also this kind of moral question that is brought upon somebody with a conscience going through um, surviving the apocalypse, which is do I kind of stay independent and stay to my the morals I knew in the old society, or do I submit to this mob like cult that um, in all of these universes emerges to survive? Um, so I thought that was a really interesting commonality between uh, some of these different works. Uh, but yeah, the road I'll get into, and uh, Mike threw in the chat here. It was. A finalist for the National Book Award, 
National Book Critic Circle Award. Um, it did win the Pulitzer Prize in 2007. Um, and I'll note that I'm pretty sure The Road was loosely the source material for The Last of Us as well, or at least it helped inspire The Last of Us. And it's the story of a father and son who are journeying across post-apocalyptic America in search of really anything. They're sort of, they say they're going, they're looking for the ocean. Like that's their primary goal is they wanna reach the coast. Um, but really what the father wants to do is just keep his son alive and teach his son um, what it means to be an adult, what it means to be a man and what it means, what sort of the old world meant. And um, yeah, it's really, it's very bleak. Basically the whole world has burned um, and they wear masks outside because of the ash in the air. And it's, it's very past the apocalypse. Um, I, like years past the apocalypse, it's like, there's very little left. And I think the, the main question that I think the main sort of theme and question out of the road was what are you surviving for when there's so little left? Um, and I, th I think we can, in, in that's something we'll maybe delve more into as we talk about rebuilding society, but the motivation of these characters to survive is very much related to their observation of how little is left for them. And, and yeah, it's a really, uh, that's a tough question to, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, like, what are you, what are you fighting for? What's gonna be on the other side of this? There's, there's no, there's barely any food, there's barely any water. Uh, there's, there's literally cannibals that are marching through the streets. Um, so, so that was, it's a very powerful and, and extremely well-written novel. So that was enjoyable to read. So the road, I first read the road when I was in eighth grade. Um, wow. In school. Like it was a school assigned. That's book. intense. It was intense. There are some scenes in there that you can never forget. Um, I don't want to describe, but like one of them. I can just, I think I know what you're talking about towards the end. Is it towards the end that there's a couple, I think, okay. I think so, but there's one scene. I don't think this is giving too much away, but there's one scene where they, they come upon a house and in the basement, there are like several um, prisoners that are um, slowly being uh, uh, delimbed for, for eating. Um, yeah. So that goes back to that cult part. But I think what's really interesting about the road or one of the really interesting, interesting things about the road is that it really gets into the deprivation and the desolation of the world, like nothing else that I've ever seen. Um, there's this, another one, another scene that I always think of is it's like winter, it's cold, there's snow on the ground and the protagonist who is like about to starve to death and his son, um, his, he sends his son out to do something and the protagonist takes off his, his shoes and his socks and like walks around on on the snow on this old apple farm. Um, and he does that so that his feet can find, um, discarded, like old shriveled up apples. And he, he, when he finds them, he picks them up and that's what he, that's what they eat for dinner. Um, and so I've never encountered anything like that before or since. And like, 
that 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 novel still it really it really is like one of i think one of the most probably one of the best novels in the past like 50 to 100 years it's so good um but anyway i don't want to monopolize too much but um i believe it's actually and, been made a movie too and maybe i've heard i've heard the movie is I've, I've heard the movie's not get, not that good uh, yeah as it goes um but yeah that's really interesting and i like how you brought up the cult thing nate and um um and it seems like the cult is and i wonder if this i don't even know if this is going to be too abstract for us but i wonder if this idea of either sticking with the cult or going it alone um i wonder if that's like a uniquely like american perspective um we kind of live in a more individualistic society and maybe the idea is like i think all these authors for the most part or creators are americans and so we have this idea which um you know whatever you think about it, it's sort of like the American creed, which is to go it alone. And the individual is sort of the, um, the pinnacle and the individual is the good guy and the group is the bad guy. And so it's kind of interesting, um, that at least in the last of us and, um, the road, and I'm sure, and it sounds like Mad Max Fury Road too, which I haven't seen. Um, but it sounds, it sounds like that sort of desire to stay by yourself or that sort of temptation to go with the with with the cult sort of thing um with the group um is is really that tension is really strong and interesting does anybody else want to is has anyone else read the road um mike or steven no i haven't yeah i read it in college and was pretty pretty shaken by it i think for the same reasons you guys described i just think like it it really describes like the toll of the like the the per kind of personal toll of, of like an apocalypse in, in the way that I in a way that I'd never really kind of read before. Um this is really jarring. Um I really like the simplicity of the writing in it too. I think just like the kind of delivery, um a lot of like short staggered sentences, if I remember correctly, right now. Um which is yeah, really definitely. interesting to see him play around with. Um yeah it was cool. No, nothing like anything I've ever read before. Yeah, and um, Cormac McCarthy is a really interesting writer. And if anyone has not, if anyone is listening to this and has not read The Road, um, you really should check it out. It's not like um, it's bleak. It's like the bleakest book you'll ever read. Um, so it's not light reading, but it's it's just it's really uh, compelling. Okay, Nate, do you have anything else to say on the topic? No, I think we should just uh, keep it moving. But yeah, I really, I really enjoyed both of them. And I thought it was funny that you, when I texted you the other day, and you didn't even, you haven't even read or watched Fury Road because I thought they were a pretty good pairing together. Like I, I saw a lot of commonalities between them. So um, good job guessing a random post-apocalyptic movie for me to watch. Accompanying Thank you. I road. appreciate it, Nate. All right. So Stephen, um, why, why don't you go ahead with yours? Yeah, sure. Uh, I actually, I think first want to start too by thanking you, Greg, because the World War Z book, I, I probably read the least out of us four. And so I, you know, you just randomly said, Stephen, why don't you read World War Z? Turns out that's a really good book. 
And so what it's about, for those who don't know, it's probably, I'm not sure about the book that Greg read. I don't, I don't know too much about that, but I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that World War Z is probably the least apocalyptic book that we're going to be talking about because, uh, and before I get too far into that, that I can't really spoil anything in this because the author or not the author, but the narrator of the book sort of tells you in the beginning that the world survives uh, World War Z, the, the zombie apocalypse. Um, yeah, so, and it's written in a way where it's a collection of interviews done by this one man after the events of the actual war. And he travels around and just gathers these stories from people in basically every aspect of life and what went down in the war. And Steven, not, to, not to interrupt, but I'm pretty no, sure please, please. the subtitle is an oral history of the zombie war, right? Isn't that what it's, isn't that the, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So. It, uh, yeah. It sort of tells you right off the get go that uh, it's, a uh you know it's telling you what had happened and it's not a story of what is happening but it's a uh it's a non-fictional fictional work yeah that in you know what i that's actually how i really felt about it i think that's one of the reasons i really liked it too it's written in such a way that it feels real when you hear the characters talk about what they went through and how the interview sort of goes down and you the the amount of detail that max brooks gets into is it was remarkable to me because he he would think of things that i will have never seen or heard of in any other post-apocalyptic media and um yeah uh other than that, I mean, I without going for at least for right now, without going into individual stories in it, that's basically the gist of it. I think I'm probably going to keep most of what I talk about to the World War Z book because the World War Z movie was a fine adaptation of it, but it was nowhere near as detailed and as visceral and interesting as the book was and maybe if we get to it i'll talk about the book of eli too but i think for now i'm just gonna i'm just gonna try to stick with world war z um steven i just out of curiosity i've I've wanted to read this book for a while and i haven't yet but um the way it's written is it written like kind of like a movie script where it has like the like yeah okay so it's like interviewer colon and Uh, then the interview has like that sort of thing well, it's not not exactly like that. It's um, so that it's it looks there's normal text and that's implied to be the interviewee, the guy that the I guess not, you know, not Max Brook author, but the author of all of the interviews. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's 
bolded text that sort of say something if the interviewer says something or sort of is explaining what's happening in the situation. So yeah, sort of like a, like what you said, like a, like a player something. Yeah. You see this a lot, like um, a lot of news outlets will do a story where instead of writing a story out, they'll just basically put a transcript of their conversation. And that's what it sounds like to me. Um, so not right. like a movie per se, but like a, um, just a conversation, like an interview, a series of transcripts. Um, and that sounds really interesting. That sound, I don't know if I've ever read anything like that at, at, in book length, at least. I certainly haven't. And I, I got to say, it was really interesting. I, I, I think you'd really like it. Steven, yeah, correct he, me if I'm sure. Sorry. No, correct me if I'm go. wrong. Um, of the ones of the, of the, the different like works that we've touched on so far. <clears throat> and this is entirely based off my memory of the movie. This is the only one that, actually is taking place like as society and you guys can jump in if i'm wrong about this too but if this is one this is the only one that takes place like as society is still kind of crumbling down right so it, it kind of starts at a point where things are as they normally would be life as we know it and then it carries on as you're watching the end of society as we know it rather than you know time skips by or we're already arrived at the point where you know the end has uh, come. It's so it's if you go based on when it's implied that those interviews were done, technically the apocalypse is over. It's it's post post apocalypse apocalyptic. Oh, interesting. So so okay. society is back technically, but the the stories that you get from the interviews happen like before during. And really in the thick of it, like the climax of the apocalypse, so you get every time frame of every sort of point of view. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's funny you say that, Mike, because um, for two reasons. First of all, the book that I read, which is The Stand, um, actually does start before society breaks down. And that's really interesting to see different interpretations of how that actually, how the societal breakdown occurs. Um, the other interesting thing is that I first heard of the book. I knew that there was a, uh, I had seen the movie like a long time ago, probably like five or six years ago. I saw the movie, but I first heard that there was a book version of it probably like two or two years ago or so. I was listening to a podcast and the, the person on the podcast was saying that um, Max Brooks has a really, deep fascination with the breakdown of society or the breakdown of civilization. Um, and so um, that definitely, definitely comes out in the movie and based on what Steven said, it definitely comes out in the book too. And um, it's just really, that's a really interesting concept. And I think that's one of the reasons why we um, are interested in it so much, but Steven, were you going to add anything to that? No. Yeah. Yeah. I was, just gonna agree with you if anything uh yeah he, he he's actually written i think a book before world war z that I, I you know i can probably grab the book real quick and find out i think it's called like the zombie survival guide which yeah the zombie survival guide journal which i'm curious as to what that would be like i, I imagine it'd be written in sort of the same way he does this this one in sort of a 
fictional nonfiction where it's sort of like a like a how to survive guide, I guess. You know, I wonder if they're I, related. That'd be interesting to see. I, yeah, I, I might just pick it up at some point and read that and maybe we can talk about it. Cool. Well, um, I, I'm a I'm a big reader, so I say read on, my friend. Um, so I'll go I'll go now. I read the stand again. I I dropped the ball on my own podcast preparation for my own hosting episode, and I am am being I, I fear that I'm a mutiny is occurring right now. But go ahead, Nate. Greg, what does this say about you as a teacher that you assigned us homework and you weren't the only person who didn't do the homework? No comment. Okay. Um, so I read the stand. Um, so the stand is a Stephen King book. I think it was like a 1970s, um, Stephen King book. One of his like universally considered his best book, maybe not universally, but almost universally considered his best book. I think it might be the longest book. Um, it's over 1300 pages. It is, is, it's a fat book. Um, but it really goes by, you can like, if you sit down and read it, um, even someone who's not a fast reader could probably read it in a week. It's just really, really um, compelling and interesting. So as I was explaining to Mike um, and everybody else, I guess the, so the stand starts at the beginning of the apocalypse. And really what's happening is that at the beginning, in the beginning of the book, it's society is still there. It's still Nobody really knows what's happening here. Let me start over. It's a super flu. So the book is about a super flu, which is a a flu virus that's escaped from um, a U.S. military lab um, in California. And actually, the prologue is really interesting because in the prologue, you get to see like patient zero Um, and patient zero is this guy who worked on this army base. And he escapes from the army base as they're going into lockdown and he goes home and he gets his kids and they drive into Texas. And by the time they get to Texas, everyone in the car is dead. So it's a super flu that is extremely contagious and extremely deadly. And it happens very fast um, to everybody. And something like it's neither 99.4 or 99.6% of the population um, dies because of it. Um, But of course, what happens is some people slip through the genetic cracks, so to speak. And um, so basically what happens is the, the, the book focuses on the people who survive the super flu and what's happening to them. But really the first 200, I think the first 200 pages or so are really the most interesting part of it. And then there's a thousand pages of also really good stuff, but the first 200 pages are really about what happens when there is sort of a breakdown of society and when do you start when do you stop trusting the current authorities and start breaking like breaking out onto your own and um not trusting people um and it's it's the scenes of panic and chaos at the very beginning of this book are just like it's so realistic and it's so terrifying um there are like national guard people and and army people that go into cities and the cities are like locked down, but then some people escape. 
uh, and there's and there's demonstrations and riots and there's um, soldiers gunning down people in the in the streets. There are news broadcasts that are being shut down in the middle of it because they go rogue and they start saying things about the superflu that the government doesn't want them to say. It's a bit of it's kind of conspiracy theory adjacent a little bit, and that's kind of um, I don't love that about it, but it's um, it's it's very realistic. Like the actual human um, reactions to all this stuff are very, um, very realistic. So I think that terror and panic at the beginning is like the huge, the, the really, the, the part that really brings out the story. Um, so again, as, as, as I said earlier, there's that 0.6 or 0.4% of people who don't get sick and they inevitably end up finding each other. And um, the char- the book is written from probably overall, like, overall, there's probably 30 different characters perspectives that the book is written from. And, um, they all sort of merge into two different camps and there's a lot of really weird, interesting, um, supernatural stuff that I won't get into too much, but basically what happens is, um, they divide between good and evil. Um, and this is kind of going back to the, um, the bad group, the bad group dynamic, um, that, that Nate and Mike were talking about. Uh, but so what happens is the good sort of the good guys end up in Boulder, Colorado, which is kind of bizarre, but it actually, it, the, the way he explains it is pretty interesting because Boulder, Colorado has this like, um, some sort of facility that people at the beginning of the super flu thought that's where the flu was getting out. So people in Boulder all left, but it, well, that's not where it was getting out. So anyway, they all end up dying. And so when all these, all the good guys go into Boulder, there's nobody there basically, which is good because then they have to figure out how to set up a society. And that's the other really interesting part. But before I get there, the bad guys end up in Las Vegas, which I think is a really um, fitting place for the bad guys to end up. Not that like, not that like Las Vegas is a bad place or that only bad people go there, but it sort of is representative of vice, um, like gambling and um, sort of like prostitution and drugs and that sort of thing. All of the all of the things that you think about when people are sort of left to their own devices kind of happen. Oh, they all converge in Las Vegas. So it's a really interesting um difference between what happens in Boulder and what happens in Las Vegas and who the people are that end up in each, in each spot. Um, and there's some people that defect into either side and, but I won't get into that, but the other really thing, the other really interesting thing about this is that when they get to Boulder, they have to figure out how to set up a society. Um, they follow this sort of supernatural figure who's like this 108 year old woman um, who kind of is like a Jesus type figure or a Moses type figure, I guess you might say. Um, there's a lot of interesting parallels um, between a lot of religious stories um, in this, uh, which I, again, I won't get into too much other than to say that she kind of is like a Jesus figure, I guess. She goes like into the desert and she wanders and she's tempted by the devil and stuff. It's 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 pretty fascinating. But anyway, they have to build a government. They have to build a society and I think Stephen King has this fascination with New England style town hall meetings um, because in a different book of his that I read, which is part of the Dark, the Dark Tower series, one, one uh, town, which is in, not in Earth, it's like in this different dimension, 
um, is also governed by the sort of New England town hall style meetings. And so this these this group um, basically elects representatives and they meet as a town and they do things by voice vote. And it's really it's direct democracy in action and stuff. And it's really interesting to see like these people who try to um, cling to the old sort of semblance of order, which is um, sort of uh, government by uh, by the people rather than by sort of monarchs. And um, there's this one interesting character who's a sociologist um, who I think Stephen King sort of created to be this like um, this explainer of his own ideology about how societies should work. And he's a really interesting character. Um, but anyway, um, and I think someone mentioned this earlier. I think it was Mike um, that about how characters change over time. Um, and there's a couple characters, at least two characters that really change from the beginning to the end. And you can watch their transformations happen. And um, some of them get, um, they take on this added responsibility and it turns them in, they turns them from uh, sort of like no good, like couch potatoes effectively into strong leaders um, and compassionate and that sort of thing. And then it does that sort of power does the opposite to some other people who are sort of weaker willed. Um, so anyway, that's, that's the stand. Has, has anyone seen, I know there's also, there's a, there's a short, I think there's a, a movie. I think it came out in like the eighties or the nineties. And now there's, there's a, um, there's a mini series on I'm trying to think it's uh paramount. I think it's on paramount plus. Um, of the stand and sort of funnily enough, um, one of the main stars in is Amber Heard. Um, so it's sort of, uh, appropriate to our times, although we're, that's a little, that was a little while ago now, but has anyone ever seen any of the adaptations or read the book? Okay. So I'm getting for the audio listeners out there, I'm getting lots of head shakes in the horizontal direction. So I'm oh, going to move on. All but, of our listeners are the audio listeners, Greg. Yeah. That was the joke. Um, my bad. It's okay. So I think, um, that, that was the, that was the sort of, um, that, that was point number two, um, or point number three. I don't even know where we are at this point, but, um, so now I think we'll, we'll move on to sort of just talking about general reactions to post-apocalyptic stuff in general, the, the genre, if you even would call it a genre, um, that sort of thing. So I think the first thing I want to ask is, uh, and I think we've touched on this before, but um, why, what makes apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic fiction so compelling? Why do we, why are we talking about it? Like, what's the point? Why are there so many books um, and movies and video games and TV shows that are post-apocalyptic? So I, I want to start with Mike. Mike, why don't you start with that one? To quote, um, <laughs> forget who said this but you guys will know <laughs> some people just want to watch the world burn is that joker no that's it's Al that's is alfred it? oh it is alfred explaining, yeah. oh, alfred. explaining oh, joker to oh. batman that's actually sir michael kane oh oh so close um i was i was i was adjacent to the answer um isn't that I don't like know. You're in the ballpark. Movie, Mike? <laughs> what? I know. That's like, it is my favorite movie, which is shameful. Um, 
I knew it was from that movie. It's pretty good. Uh, I'm known for my terrible memory. Um, but yeah, thinking, thinking just kind of off the cuff to your question, Greg, I think maybe some of it is an infatuation with, um, thinking about what, how, like, if I'm just kind of thinking along the lines of the game and the, in the, in the show slash comic I was exposed to, like people are really interested in exploring, uh, how, uh, tragedy to the scale of an apocalypse an apocalypse so wiping the slate clean uh you can do anything you want you can be anyone you want like what people would do in that situation i think is a pretty provocative um literary device and 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 question to ask people to consider in in a, a world that's so buttoned up and and so bound to rules and norms uh, that playing around in the, in the space where you don't have to, um, you can, you can choose to define and treat people, um, in whatever way, uh, you, you deem necessary and, and just, uh, if there is such a thing as justice in post-apocalyptic world, um, then maybe just the, 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 the dramatic contrast to the, the overly rule bound societies that that most people have to live inside of um it's just like a a really nice space to exist within i know for me like um yeah so what what i what i've enjoyed about post post apocalyptic um pieces of literature and and games and and what have you like is is playing around in that space and um getting to kind of uh, define who I, if I'm playing a game, you know, defining what kind of person I'm going to choose to be um, and, you know, rooting for, you know, people that are, are choosing to, to try to follow a similar path and, you know, predetermined literature. So, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe, you know, so there, there, there's a, a nugget of truth to that. Like, I think we're, we're, we're pretty interested in exploring uh what it's like to to turn the system on its head um and to kind of see if i if i can sort of butt in here for a minute mike um but it sounds like what you're saying when you turn the system on its head a lot of these authors or creators are testing you and asking you if the same rules of morality apply in the sort of vacuum um you know, it's not a vacuum, but if you, if you're taking the current system and flipping it upside down, um, do the same rules apply? Are you still a, a good person? Are you still a bad person yeah. if you kill someone? Um, yeah. Yeah. That sort of thing. I think that was a really fun, uh, and I know everybody can jump in on this one, but I think that was a really fun theme to play around with in the last of us where they took this character, Joel and, and something that happens a lot in video games, I think is, you just to make a long story short, you kill a lot of people and you don't really realize you're doing it. And you don't really think about the consequences of doing that. Right. So you're just like playing call of duty. You you're shooting a bunch of people. Um, often we don't stop to think like, what are the consequences of me as this character going on a killing spree <laughs> essentially in this very violent video game. And you just got to make sure you pick up the ammo packs. Exactly. Exactly. And you very much do in the last of us, like 
quite frequently. And, you know, when they let you have MO, I think some of the, some of the struggles you're trying to survive with limited resources, but anyway, um, that catches up to, to Joel at some point. And, and they, and they really ask you the questions like, you know, we, the way that we've been framing the story up to this point is to think of, you know, the main character doing what they have to do to get to a positive outcome. And it's the traditional hero's journey where they, they overcome adversity and they develop and they, 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 they uncover meaning and, and they realize what it's like to, to take accountability. And, and then they, they find that clear path for themselves. And then it totally flips the script on you and asks you to consider, well, okay, what were the consequences of, of choosing violence to achieve, you know, those ends and uh, who suffered as a, as a result of that. And I think that kind of goes back to when you play as the villain of the story here, you begin to kind of see um, and think about how, you know, one's actions impact those around them, especially when they're hyper-violent. Well put. Um, anyone else can jump in there if, if you want. Um, I'll, I'll leave it up to Stephen or Nate to, uh, to chime in if you'd like. To answer question number four a yeah yeah which is just what makes it so compelling why do we yeah yeah i mean i definitely want to second what mike said i think that it's uh it's kind of a throw the rules aside in some ways and see what humans are capable of without um yeah all those all those old rules that governed um society before things crumbled i think the other what my sort of instinctive answer to this question is I think in the back of our minds, we all know like society won't last forever. You know, even if, even if in a perfect scenario, you know, the sun would eclipse us in you know, millions and millions of years, but obviously that's not, you know, society will probably break down at some point sooner than that. So I think there's kind of a, I think it's a right, a rightful place to play around with where it's like, well, you know, we're not, this civilization we have isn't going to last forever. Maybe it'll last a few hundred years, maybe it'll last a few thousand years. We don't know, but it's not going to last forever. And therefore it's going to have to fall apart somehow. And maybe it's a, maybe it's a um, disease, maybe it's war, maybe it's something supernatural. Um, but I think that's that's part of it too, is playing around with how might this go down. And then the other part of that, if the world is to fall apart, and maybe this is the uniquely American um, individualistic perspective on this, is kind of the question of would I survive? If the world started to fall apart, what would I do? And I feel like that's a classic question of our generation. Like, you know, would you survive the zombie apocalypse? What would happen? Zombie apocalypse. Um, but yeah, I think that's part of it too, is the world's going to end someday. someday. How's it going to happen? If it happened tomorrow, how would you do? Um, and I think that's sort of, it's just a fun question to play around with, but I think there's enough, there's enough realistic stuff to work with that there's a lot of different takes you can um, go down. And I think it's, there's just, there's an infinite amount of fiction that you can work with from that concept. Yeah. It's almost like stressing about the future turns to the max. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you're just, you, 
you you could be thinking about tomorrow and you know um, you might hit traffic you might have a bad day at work stuff like that but if you you know crank it crank it up a few years you know think about stuff that could change the world climate change and zombies if we're going down that road which we're gonna be uh nuclear war which did anyone actually do nuclear fallout for one of one of the things was is mad max is that how the world ends at least from fury road it's very ambiguous i i don't know the backstory but it's the the road would make a lot of sense the road seems to suggest that there was a there was a nuclear apocalypse but there's no confirmation actually the book of eli actually is nuclear apocalypse so i guess maybe i should have known that but uh yeah i think it's just something that you know people want to people want to predict where their life goes no matter how crazy the situation might get i think they want some sort of a a path laid out for them even if it's fictional even if it's ridiculous they want to know that those things can at least theoretically be done even if it's in a video game in a book in a movie they want to know that someone has thought of the things that they'll need to think of and you know maybe the information that they get from this entertaining story maybe they'll maybe they'll need it someday yeah and i think that people um people imagine themselves as the main character that survives um to quote or not really to quote but just to um it reminds me of the classic crystalia um netflix special man on fire where he's like you know everybody imagines that they're gonna be you know the main character the, the denzel washington the you know and that's i think what a lot of this is is people you know if there's only a handful of people that survive the apocalypse everyone in the back of their mind thinks like it might be me you know i yeah you know, i could do this if yeah. i just act like joel if i you know anyway but i think that's part of it too i kind of have like a kind of like a jumping off point on, on all this on the on these kind of discussions but what why do you think that at least sort of recently so i think all of the again might be wrong but all the things that we've discussed kind of paint the apocalypse in a more serious light um and 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 it's it's a much more it's they're all all very dark all very gritty work so they all i, think all I know what you you're feel, gonna say here mike yeah okay so they'll make you feel quite bad rightfully right about the world that <clears throat> they're trying to portray right if you go back maybe 20 30 40 years to like the old kind of zombie and probably before that too to the old kind of traditional zombie movies the first the first kind of mainstream i I think mostly like horror movies um they paint the i feel like the the apocalypse kind of in in a in a lighter um almost goofier way and it might be a, a you know a product of of lack of resources of you know teasing out <clears throat> what it you know what the apocalypse could be and like what a zombie was and all that I, i'm not i'm not as well versed in the history of zombie movies but what's like an example like what would you say this is an example of a um, so like something like the 
I guess kind of like maybe like the Night of the the Living Dead it was it was a was a zombie movie right where it's kind of just this like hack and slash you know zombies are everywhere you get bit you get killed the characters are ignorant they they know what they're doing they're just trying to you know <laughs> they're they're very confused and 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 very helpless right and and all the kind of works that we've touched on here are are competent people you know surviving through thick and thin um or they don't and 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 you really feel the loss there um personally whereas you know you have kind of a i think i i approached what i'm kind of touching on in that more traditional like stupid horror character sense where they like they probably could have got out of the situation they walked into a slow moving zombie that bit them and and they just allowed themselves to get bit right so like what like why do you think that at least in, in it seems like the more in recent times post post-apocalyptic like works have kind of gravitated more toward uh building relationships and unhappy endings and uh and, and and just like a darker, less I guess goofy is the right word. I think tone in general. I, I might have this wrong, but I'm just thinking the first post-apocalyptic works that I were exposed to, that I was exposed to, were they were just kind of silly. Like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really feel invested in the world and the characters. I, I I just kind of watched them for the the horror element and the blood and gore aspect that's kind of more conventional with like other kind of horror genre movies. So yeah. Yeah. Why the change? Um, one of my pet peeves is uh, among movies and books and that, and that sort of thing is that the stakes get so high um, with each subsequent movie. So we talk about this with the Avengers all the time, but stay tuned podcast listeners, because there will be an episode where we talk exclusively about the Marvel stuff, but um, the each subsequent Marvel movie just became more and more um, apocalyptic. Um, but it wasn't just the Earth that was that was going to explode; it was the universe that was going to explode. Oh, sorry, it's breaking the fourth wall here. My cat has just joined the conversation. Um, so, uh, anyway, um, I think maybe that's one of the reasons why. Maybe like as as the sort of general cultural zeitgeist or the general cultural attitude moves towards things being more serious and having higher stakes, um, the sort of post-apocalyptic genre goes with it. Um, but Mike, I thought you were going to say, uh, I thought you were going to talk about the movie. This is the end. Is that have you seen <laughs> this? with uh, Seth Rogen and yeah, I've seen the movie, but. Um, I think that's a refreshing change of pace. Yeah. I think that's mm-hmm. I think that movie came out far after the switch to um, more serious um, yes. apocalyptic stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of the joke of the movie. Like, let's try a funny version of this. Um, I mean, it's a kind of a funny premise. Like, what would what would a group of comedians and and funny actors do in the apocalypse? Um, yeah, yeah, that was a. Anyway, yeah, it seems like it's picking fun at exactly what you're talking about, Gregor. It's like, yeah, the stakes are so high. Like, there's like literally like a huge crater in front of this like huge yeah. mansion. Um, <laughs> are there like monsters and shit just like flying around? Like, it, it doesn't make any sense. And and they know that these these movies and this this like genre often doesn't. But that's like the and they have like one they have like one um, 
Snickers bar or something that, which <laughs> sort of reminds me of the road in some ways. Like it sort of reminds me of like a, a funny mm-hmm. satire on the road where they have like one, you know, can of sausages or something that they're, <laughs> which I, I uh, we don't have to go down. Well, whatever, for the sake of tangents, um, one of the things that, and I really didn't mean to go down this tangent right now, but just quickly, did you guys find that you had to sort of suspend disbelief when reading your or experiencing your um, works of fiction about the how realistic it would be for these people to really survive? Because that was one thing I thought during the road, although they did depict um, certain moments of deprivation and starvation pretty vividly um yeah there there are certain points where i'm like where do they find these like where does one find a can of sausages like i don't even i don't even know where i would find that today um and they just and like literally the whole world is burned down like the, the it's all ash um like yes you could probably find some cans of food once but to find it regularly enough that you wouldn't die across the whole traversing the country um it's it's awfully convenient um and and they do there's a couple times they stumble upon a lot of food and i think cormac mccarthy writes that with enough enough bravado that it really seems like a like they struck gold but for for it's more the the random other occurrences where like they find a random gas station and the gas station happens to have some some old cans of food at it and yeah, did you guys find a similar thing where you doubt doubted your characters would really survive the apocalypse? Yeah, I kind of did, but the the way World War Z is written, it's it's sort of I think written in a more believable way in the sense that the world doesn't necessarily end completely. It's just pushed down and it's trying to get back up. The the thing that I don't this is the thing that I think the movie does better than the book does. Although I'm kind of speculating because the zombie apocalypse hasn't happened yet. And I don't know for sure, but in the book, the zombies themselves are your typical reanimated corpse, you know, slow walking, moaning arms stretched out, just shuffling towards people. Somehow that ends up creating a situation where most of the people in the world are now zombies, which I I don't I don't know if I can quite get behind because it's actually says in the book they're not hard to outwalk. The thing is, I guess where they have the advantage is their persistence. Like they, they don't have to sleep or eat or stop walking for anything but the movie on the other hand they they turned it up a notch and they made it so the the zombies are just full-blown sprinting around cities and diving onto people there's that there's that one scene i think in a preview but it's also in the movie where there's like um people in a helicopter and they're above this walled city and the zombies are just running at the wall and they're hitting the wall and falling down and other zombies are running up on, t- on top of them, creating like a gigantic ladder. Yeah. Yeah. Believe so it, believe funny. it, believe it or not. It's actually all of Israel. That's walled like that. Oh, okay. Okay. Gotcha. And, and yeah, they do the whole thing where like they hear, I don't know, some sort of like a concert going on 
on this other side of the wall and they start just climbing on top of each other and like forming a human ladder and it's just like there's no there's no way anybody's surviving that if if the zombies you know climbing on top of you know making a human ladder and running full sprints the entire time everybody's dead I yeah, think. I'm glad you mentioned the running zombie part because that was for me the the scariest part of that entire that entire movie. Like as soon as a zombie can run, um, a like I think that's more convincing. <laughs> like why could zombies only walk, and how are the walking zombies still managing to kill people? Is that a thing in the but, Last of Us, or am I misremembering? Is it some point in the Last of Us is there a running zombie, or is that? Am I... Yeah, I think they're fast. They're fast moving. I think they. I think they're all fast moving. Yeah. Well, not like the. There's different sizes and of. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I think forget the... all the classes of zombie from that movie. Well, well I think the game, but. I think the clickers, which are like the ones that are really decomposed. Yeah. Those ones don't run because they yeah, can't they see. Well, yes, typically, but they're right. also. Oh yeah, 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 right. They're also much more dangerous and uh, devastating if they're to touch you. But yeah, I think the the kind of gradually and recently infected oh yeah uh, yeah you're right the you're fastest right. moving um, yeah like though they're almost they're almost human like they they sort of seem they look pretty human but they're just mm-hmm. kind of recently infected um, yeah yeah actually that reminds me of some scenes where they're chasing after you yeah and i guess you you have to suspend disbelief maybe at, like the premise of zombie movies right to be like okay like what's the like well I is, mean, this, is this rooted in right any sort of whereas if you know take something like what greg worked on here like with the with a disease um with a with a fast moving credibly infectious and deadly disease it's not it's not too hard to imagine a scenario like that you know poppling society you just take you know what we're living in right now as a as a my other example of of how uh sweeping something like that could potentially be yeah, and the last Which I think was, is, is more haunting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the last of us does try it with. It gives like a more biological interpretation yeah, like the of zombies. Mutation. It's a, like yeah. a fungal meat, um, infection rather than yeah. an yeah. undead zombie. Um, but yeah, I agree that the a flu-like disease is the most close to home realization of something like this. Mm-hmm. You guys ever see Contagion? I think we all watched it. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Which I actually thought that's a great example. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was yeah, also that, thinking I was, of... that was. Go ahead, Nate. No, I, I, I was also so for the listeners, we just stumbled upon an inside um, yeah, memory, but we watched Contagion our sophomore year of college. But we also watched The Children of Men. I was um, gonna. I almost had that. that. I had that on I, my list. I'm just trying to remember why I was reminded of that movie, but. I was reminded of that movie at some point when contemplating um, the road. Well, that's one of those ones where society is in the process of breaking down too. Um, yeah, I and, think yeah, what, that's true. Go ahead, Nate. I, I think what I was not to bring us down another tangent, but I think this is a pretty good conversation starter. Uh, what I was, I was reminded of the children of men because it was another example um this is kind of abstract, but in the children of men and in the last of us and in Mad Max Fury Road and 
in all of those works, there's sort of this object of hope that there's some, they're, tr they're trying to, they're trying to, there's an object of hope in, I'll just spoil the children of men since it wasn't even part of this originally. And in children of men, um, the fertility rates have basically become zero on the earth. Like, there's no, right. That, that's, that's my, yep. yeah. Uh, women have lost the ability to reproduce from, from some, I don't think they really explain why, but there's one um, pregnant woman or the, the, this woman um, has a child and they're trying to protect her and kind of, um, yeah, protect her through the apocalypse and bring her to some safe haven, I believe. And that, that's quite similar to The Last of Us. It's similar to Mad Max Fury, Fury Road. And all, th those three are very similar. It's abstractly similar, similar to The Road because um, in The Road, the father and son keep bringing up that they're carrying the fire. Um, that, that's something that, that's a saying that the father continually says to his son, um, you know, we're the good guys. And, you know, the son is like, and we carry the fire, right? And he goes, yes, you, we carry the fire. And that is the most abstract version of trying to protect some symbol of hope through the apocalypse. And they, they never really explain what the fire means, but that's not really the point. There's not, there's clearly not a meaning. It's something that the father says the son to symbolize that they're carrying something on um, some legacy on from the way the world used to be so did you guys works any on a couple of different levels um carrying the fire um one level is that you don't really have civilization without fire because you can't cook things you can't build um like you can't make bricks, you can't make um, swords and stuff like that. You can't make anything without fire. So that's one thing. So they're carrying on civilization, like the basic building blocks of what civilization is. And then the second level is there's lightness and darkness. And the, the, the lightness is represented by the fire, obviously. And so they're carrying the fire. They're, they're carrying the good stuff of humanity into kind of a dark unknown. Um, I, I want to move us along because we're not going to get to, we're going to get, at this rate, we're going to get to about two questions, um, but that's okay. But I want to collapse a couple of my other, a couple of the other questions into one. One of the things that we talk about a lot that we've been talking about is the breakdown of society. Um, and uh, I want to talk about that specifically because, sorry, again, my, my cat's on my shoulder. That was a very um, cute shot. I think I'm... <laughs> tried to take a screenshot of that but i think she moved away go ahead um the um so the breakdown of society is like a major component of all these she's impressively poised here yeah it's yeah like, she's good very good she's, posture uh, that's she's, what she wants she's to she's curious like, very curious um okay so let me, let me try this for the third time but anyway so um the breakdown of society is interesting, right? Because we live in a society and it's very structured as I think Mike said, um, or someone said that, um, it's very structured. We have rules, we have routines, stuff like that. And so when this sort of stuff breaks down, it's like, who is adapted to live in the world without that type of structure? Um, but I think, and I want to explore this a little bit, um, and so here comes the question, the question about revelation guys. So get ready. Um, 
but so my, my question is, do you think that in modern times, like today, we are more um, compelled by this sort of genre of fiction than in previous genres? And so my thought process for this is, um, I mean, I'm presuming, yes, I'm presuming that we are more compelled by post-apocalyptic stuff today than we were, say, I don't know, before the scientific revolution or the enlightenment or pick your pick your uh, major momentous event in human history um, uh, after which we sort of became more, quote, civilized. Um, because if we have all this, like, so for instance, we're sitting here, right? We're on Zoom. We are on, um, we're on computers, which are built with microchips and screens. And, and we have, um, we have microphones and we're sitting in insulated houses and there's electricity and all this stuff, right? We have refrigeration, we have clean water. Um, if we, if this, if that, if all that stuff was taken away from us, there would be very few of us left who would be able to, who would know what to do next to survive without all that stuff. So that's, that's question number, that's question number one. How, like, are we more, are we more interested in what, in post-apocalyptic stuff in a highly advanced society because we just can't even comprehend what it would be like without all this stuff. And if that's, if that's the case, then why is like one of the most, one of the oldest stories in our civilization, um, the story of revelation. Um, and I don't know too much about the story of revelation, but from what I understand, it's like sort of the original apocalypse story, right? There's like the, the, is it the four horsemen? Right. Um, and yeah, then I mean, the, we can do a little for, yeah, why don't you give a little... to the book of Revelation, which is um, the last book of the New Testament and therefore um, the last book of the Christian Bible. Um, like it's literally the last chapter in the giant Bible. And it really, um, I'm trying to think of the right analogy for this, but uh, it gets crazy. I, that, that book, is, it throws everything everything you know about the bible um gets thrown aside for that um and it, it deals with the second coming of christ and the four horsemen of death or whatever they are uh, and yeah and that actually reminded me of i think the the sort of the next seminal work of post-apocalyptic fiction which i've never read i i would be surprised if you guys have, but maybe you have Dante's Inferno. Has anyone ever played around no. with that? I think, I don't know when that is from. Is it from like the 1700s? Um, 1500s is earlier. Yeah. I feel it's like old. that's the original because that, I think what Dante's Inferno is, and I think there's actually three books and only one of them is Inferno. I think Dante wrote three. Um, Paradiso and Purgatorio. Yeah. I, I, I think that book was really, that was almost like a, that was like a a, fa a work of fan fiction from the book of revelation like um, the book of revelation uh, gives so much crazy stuff that isn't in you wouldn't find in the rest of the bible and i think dante really played up what uh, the levels of hell and um all that and that might be the original origin of a lot of post-apocalyptic fiction and yeah 
I'd be curious to read that as a result of um, this conversation. It's either it's 14th century. So 1300s. Yeah. Wow. So that's kind of like, but I don't really think that's the same. I I don't really think it's, I think neither revelation nor Dante's Inferno, even though I haven't really read either in a lot of detail. I don't really think they're the same thing as the last of us or no, but that's, I think but, um, like abstractly, yes, they're dealing with the apocalypse and the end of society as we know it, and maybe who survives the end of society. But I don't know. I think they might be different fascinations. Maybe not. I th- uh, I th- sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think those two things, I'm not sure about. I guess I'm not sure about either of them, but I think... If I was to take a guess, I would say those two things are sort of written in a light of acceptance by the author and the reader that it's not a what if situation. It's just a, when it happens, this is how it's going to end. Whereas the stuff that you know we read is like a more this thing could happen maybe and what would it be like if it did yeah in some ways it's hard to divorce this from like the the difference between this from just like the rise and the prevalence of fiction today like there's just so much Mm -hmm. more that's fair people have so much leisure time today and i think just art is much more robust and there's a lot of authors and writers and um video game producers and movie producers there's there's just so many more opportunities to create this stuff that like i just think there's they didn't have those kind of avenues in the 1300s so when someone like dante writes a crazy book about hell it it was just something that was unlike anything else ever written Mm -hmm. um this sort of dovetails into another question that i wanted to ask um and Stephen, you brought up nuclear apocalypse earlier. Um, one of the things that I did in preparation for this whole um, episode was I like just looked up this blog of, and it was like, I don't know if it was ranking the best um, post-apocalyptic books because I was originally just going confine it, to confine it to books um, or if it was just a list of them. And, but either way, it was this list that was really interesting. Um, and I hadn't heard of most of the titles on the book. I think there were like 60 books on there. And a lot of them, like the road was on there. The stand was on there. I think world War Z was on there. So, um, a lot of the ones that, that we're familiar with and that we've been talking about, but a lot of them are from like the 1950s, 1960s. And so that got me to thinking, and uh, there's a brief description of each one that got me to thinking, um, and I, uh, like you can sort of notice how if if you look at those titles and if you look at the years that they were released, you can sort of notice that it, the, the topics or the method of apocalypse, the method of destruction changes um, over time to sort of represent the fears of contemporary society. Um, And so I think you're more likely to, to see a book about the nuclear apocalypse or a nuclear apocalypse maybe during the sixties, um, like right around the Cuban missile crisis era, um, or even in the fifties, like right after, um, 
or the yeah late 40s early 50s right after the end of world war ii when the the first atomic bombs are dropped and it's just nobody's any seen, ever seen anything like it um and so then everyone naturally becomes worried about what um what comes next um so we have nuclear stuff that happens in maybe the 60s and maybe again in the 80s because i think in the 80s there was a lot of cold war um scariness in terms of nuclear weapons um plague seems to be an endemic thing not to like pun unintended there but um like plague in fiction probably fits anywhere in the in the timeline because um you know the 19 there's the there's a spanish flu in the 1918 1917 or so um and that wipes out a good chunk of the earth and then of course there's the bubonic plague back in the day maybe i don't know i'm just speculating here but maybe dante's inferno was written around that time um and sort of deals with more death and destruction and that sort of thing um but based on all that based on all the things i just said what do you guys think a post-apocalyptic fiction like if you if you were to write one or if you were to um sort of predict what a post-apocalyptic book or movie or video game would look like if it were released tomorrow and you had no um you had no prior knowledge of the plot what would it look like what do you think it would look like and i will start this one with steven um wow uh i if it were to come out tomorrow i mean i i feel like it'd be a cop-out answer to say plague because of covid but i mean that definitely is at least as of this particular year probably the most sort of worrying thing about our time other than obviously you know russia's doing some kind of crazy stuff over in that side of the world um i mean yeah i think i think nuclear holocaust is kind of a thing that's always kind of a worry with you know the arsenal that the world has at this point in time um yeah other than that i mean i think i think zombies is just sort of a a horror genre that sort of took on a form of a a more serious context Uh, we were talking about how i think mike was saying that how zombie movies used to be kind of silly like that and i think that's definitely how they started and then i don't know who did it first it probably is it george a romero the big zombie guy right does anybody know yeah i think it's i think it's george romero oh just romero i don't know yeah um oh yeah george a george a romero yeah you're right sorry okay no his middle initial (laughs) oh good uh yeah i think i'm gonna go out on living dead yeah right i think he that is probably the first one that says what if this is a serious thing though and then you know that sort of expands and now we're you know we have world war z we have the last of us and it's you know it's a thing people think about i also wanted to say about the how you were saying greg how different time frames sort of categorize the post-apocalyptic fiction that people sort of focus on there was there was the brief stint 
I want to say, I guess if I had to take a guess from like the nineties to maybe like 2010, where there was a decent amount of movies that came out that were, uh, sort of like climate disasters, like, uh, the day the earth stood still or no, not that one. Uh, the day after tomorrow, that's, that's the one 2012, um, was another one I was thinking of, but I lost it. But yeah, I just, I think that's, yeah, definitely a thing. It's sort of the, the problems that society's facing in a given time sort of are reflected in the post-apocalyptic fiction that they decide to portray. And I think we were, we were talking about Children of Men earlier. I think there's sort of intimations that in that movie the crisis of infertility is in some way caused by maybe I'm in some way caused by um, the climate, but I'm maybe I'm getting that confused with handmaid's tale. Um, that might actually be, that's where that is. Um, okay. Uh, does anybody else want to tackle that question about what it would look like? What sort of post-apocalyptic movies or, or books look like based on today's like, 2022's concerns so i just want to jump in quickly say i i don't actually i don't actually think that while it obviously makes the most sense i don't think people i don't think that the next like if you put one out tomorrow i don't think it would be about the plague only because the plague is now like a feasible and lived experience that's toppled society in some form as we know it and I think that what's what's appealing about all of the works that we touched on is that they feel within grasp, right? Like within reason, but just outside the realm of possibility. Like I could see, I guess, that like a fungal infection mutates to the point that it compromises and and overtakes like the brainstem and this really, you know, far-fetched scientific justification um, leads to a, a, a kind of zombie. Um, but now having like lived in the midst of a pandemic, I wonder if people would be as open to the idea of seeing movies that basically reflect like their lived experience in some way. Um, just because like, it's like too real, honestly. Like, like you know what I mean. Like people be like that's that. That, point. that hits too close to home. I just wonder. I maybe maybe they would. Maybe they'd be like, maybe there will start being a whole lot of movies about like the pandemic or something. Um, but I wonder, like, I like I wonder how many movies were made about. <laughs> you guys might have the answer, but like World War Two, like during World War Two. Probably like, not that many. There's there's plenty of them now, and, and I think it's it's like fun to look at not fun, but it's, it's, it's more palatable to look at uh, a subject matter in the rear view mirror rather than when it's, uh, you know, right in front of you. So I wonder how that would affect the source material. That said, a lot of the other things I think Stephen mentioned, like where you can feel the, the potential apocalypse looming, like climate change or a nuclear war or like again like call of duty and just using gaming forever but like they've always kind of alluded to these geopolitical conflicts that could boil over into something that's 
a potential next world war, um, but that hasn't existed in reality. And they've only, I mean, they, they have also touched on, you know, real world uh, conflicts that um, have happened or could happen based on current geopolitical conflicts, um, but aren't actual factual, uh, uh, actual factual wars, but could be based on those contentions. But um, anyway, <laughs> that was all to say, Stephen. I think you're dead wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I would say <laughs> no. I, I also think that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just, I think probably one of those other things you touched on for me would be more. I, I would think we, we'd go there next because people would be like, I could see that happening. I don't believe that it's going to. Um, and then you know, once it does, then you could, you could probably throw climate change related. Uh, post-apocalyptic movies out the window because it'll be a little too real let me just real quick i i think it's we shouldn't forget old mother earth's favorite apocalypse to throw well i guess it's self's way but our meteor strikes yeah asteroids crashing into earth i mean that's happens we'll never we'll never be able to well this is I'm glad you brought this up, Stephen, because I don't know if you guys saw this. I'm sure Stephen did, yeah. but there was this um, recent rocket that NASA launched at some sort of meteor, right? Or asteroid or whatever the proper term is. Yeah. Um, do we know? And so the, the point of that is to try to test out that capability. If we can send a rocket into space to intercept or at least knock off course an asteroid that's sort of hurtling towards earth that could cause massive sort of extinction level flooding or earthquakes or anything like that. Do you know, Stephen, if that was successful? I think as far as I know right now, they're still sort of tracking it to see how much it was affected by the collision. I'm not sure how long it's going to take. I, I can't imagine it'll take that long because, you know, it moves however far you can see if it's different than it's very predictable course that they've probably been measuring for years at this point. Funny mentioned Stephen. I think they just made or Greg, who's that first? No, Stephen said first. Um, they just made the movie on that movie on Netflix with Leonardo DiCaprio. Like I, I think yeah. like about yeah. uh, I, I yeah, just yeah, watched yeah. that recently. I, I was kind of late to watch that, but I watched it not too long ago. And when mm-hmm. I saw in the news about the NASA thing that was, yeah, that was the, the, um, direct connection I made, but continue on Mike. Sorry. Yeah, no, that, I mean, if, if Nate, maybe you, if you want to kind of jump in on that, just sort of, I think it's kind of a, it plays around with, with, uh, if I remember correctly, like a couple of interesting things that are kind of going on here that we, that we've touched on throughout this convo, but like they go on this whole media tour, right. To try to convince the entire world that the apocalypse is coming hasn't happened yet it's it's waiting in the wings and kind of like what steven was touching on it's a it's a totally valid uh like commonly explored and has even we've come close to experiencing in real life but like like scientific basis um but you know due to all of the different kind of flaws of you know society and human behavior like People just didn't listen to it, but I'll, I'll just tee it up like that. And if, if you have any kind of thoughts out on it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you remembered it pretty correctly. I think there's, I think there's kind of this political 
question that they play around with and the president very literally the fictional president in that movie entertains is like what's the best way of telling your citizenry that they're all gonna die you know like what and the uh the scientists who are the main characters of the movie are very um apocalyptic for lack of a better word about it and clearly uh, the white house and the media are trying to be very um break it to them gently they don't really believe it and you know what are the consequences if we tell people they're gonna die and what there there's some way they actually they not to spoil the movie but who really cares they sort of almost attempt to do exactly what nasa just did the other week um halfway through the movie they send they are prepared to send a rocket to intercept the meteor that's going to kill earth and then um through a somewhat ridiculous plot line, they decide to turn the rocket around uh, because this rich guy told them to. Um, but that aside, that yeah, that's what it reminded me of the movie. And all both that movie and and sort of the the NASA mission that we were talking about is a uh, it's almost pre apocalyptic fiction. It's, mm. um, I don't really have a deep insight more than that, but it's, yeah, that's, it's more playing around with, well, I, I guess in that, in that scenario, there really isn't a post apocalypse. In fact, there's actually, a, I think a post set credit sequence where, um, Jonah Hill, like comes out under the rubble and the whole world is destroyed spoilers. Um, but yeah, there's not really much of a post apocalypse in that situation but i think that's a i think that's a worthy genre of the impending apocalypse and how do people react to the threat of apocalypse there's um there's a movie called deep impact has anyone seen that one no so deep impact and this is is like armageddon too um i haven't seen armageddon i've seen deep impact but deep impact is there's an asteroid coming to earth and um it's that whole thing it's like how do you react like everyone know it's everyone's gonna die and yet still like in the movie they sort of know where it's gonna land and it ends up landing off like the coast of california and it creates this just gigantic tidal just everywhere in the earth there's tidal waves like like 200 feet high like there this shows like new york city just getting and like engulfed by a gigantic tidal wave and so like everyone knows that everyone's gonna die but you still see people there's this one scene where like, as the comet is going across the sky and like landing in earth, there's people that there's cars lined up to get to like the highest point in California or something. Cause they're trying to avoid, um, the inevitable. And that's, that is, that's a fair point, Nate. Um, maybe we, I don't want to do a whole podcast on that, but that's a definitely interesting thing to explore psychologically. Like what happens if you know that the world is going to end and there's going to be some denial and there's going to be some sort of doomsday prepper type people who think they can um, escape the inevitable. Um, and yeah, it's interesting. Um, I have three potential answers to my own question, maybe four. Um, and then I think we should start moving towards wrapping things up because um, it's getting late. But so my question again was what would a, current uh, post-apocalyptic movie or something be 
And actually I was thinking of don't look up, but the reason I was thinking of it was not because of the asteroid thing. I was thinking of it because from what I understand, it's supposed to be an allegory for climate change. Um, like the whole meteor in the sky is supposed to be the impending um, disaster of climate change. Um, so I think that could be one potential uh, plot line, right? So there's, there's that one. Um, the second one would be some sort of, as Mike suggested, like a geopolitical um, crisis point where, and especially after the Russia-Ukraine thing, um, there's all sorts of questions about what would happen if, um, if China tried to invade Taiwan. Um, and I think, well, there's all sorts of questions about what would happen. I don't want, I don't want to like give that short shrift by just sort of glossing over it, but, um, I don't really know enough to talk about it. That's a second one. A third one that, um, hasn't come up yet. And I'm somewhat surprised is genetic engineering. Um, and you sort of see this with, there's two, there's the planet of the apes, but I'm talking about the recent rise of the planet of the apes because the old one, actually, that would have been an interesting movie. Just, I haven't seen it, but I've, I know what happens. I, I, I know the spoiler alert thing at the end. I'm not going to say it, but, um, but the new one with, uh, James Franco and the, the chimpanzees that sort of become humans or very close to humans and they sort of take over and, um, so, but those are genetically engineered chimpanzees, right? And other sorts of monkeys. And then Jurassic Park too. Um, and I don't know if you guys re saw the recent Jurassic World movie. Um, I forget what it's called. The most recent one, it's pretty good. I mean, it's like, it's one of those movies, like, do they have to make this? No. Dominion. Dominion, yeah. Um, so genetic engineering. Um, so that's the second, that's the third one. That was just, yeah, that's the third one. The fourth one is... Um, like an AI takeover, a robot inspired apocalypse, which I don't really know why that sort of slipped through my mind when I was coming up with things to assign to people. But I think that would have been a really interesting genre to explore. And, and um, there's this movie called Transcendence with Johnny Depp. That's about this. Um, I sort of briefly saw a part of it, but not the whole thing. Um, but like this, what do you do about like, like, um, well, genetic engineering too. genetic engineering and the robot takeover thing are both sort of human, human created. You could say climate changes too, but really the, those other two are really more just human created. These creations that sort of go spin out of control. And like, how do you, how do you deal with that as the people who did it, you know, and, and the same thing with the super flu that gets released from a lab, it's like, oops. And then you have to figure out, they have to figure out how to cope with that. Um, and then there's also, the, also the question of are if an AI becomes like generally intelligent, they call it like, what would, what would that look like? And would they be, could you consider them life? Could you consider them sort of a human, human 2.0 kind of deal or that sort of thing? But anyway, um, Can I make as I one? said, yeah, go ahead. Just one quick. I think that's a great, I mean, I think there's. We might, there may be a whole episode in the future about um, AI and AI takeover. Um, but one, and I know we're just going to wrap things up, but one of your extra questions was uh, honorable mentions and the AI robot takeover reminded me of um, another video game, Horizon Zero Dawn, which I had just, I sort of 
started playing, forgot about for a while and refinished earlier this year. Um, and that game is describes and depicts a post-apocalyptic world where essentially robots, which humans created became, they were originally designed as war robots and, um, they become super intelligent and more powerful and the humans kind of lose control of them and you play far into the apocalypse um and in in this world where these robots kind of reign supreme and and humanity is back into the very primitive tribal existence um so i i really thought the in some ways not to break down the whole video game right now I, in some ways i think the the story was really complex and revealed very late into the game. Um, but the, the, the full backstory of that game is really fascinating. And if anybody doesn't care about playing the game or doesn't play video games, I would really just recommend looking up Horizon Zero Dawn. I think it, if you just read the backstory of it, it presents a really interesting um, AI gone wrong, uh, robots gone wrong story that, yeah, that's definitely a whole aspect of, uh, the apocalypse that in the post-apocalypse that uh, the things we read and watched didn't really touch on but in some ways is maybe more realistic cool all right um i think we're going to start wrapping up we have an audience question is that is that correct yeah nate you got it up uh yeah give me a second uh, sorry sorry to put you on the spot as as Nate's trying to find us, I want to first of all, um, I just want to thank the audience for your patience. If you've made it this far, then you still want to hear us talk, and uh, we appreciate it. And um, we are still figuring out what the proper format of this rebooted podcast is going to be. But um, so if this seemed a little disjointed, um, uh, we're, we're working out the kinks and, uh, we appreciate the patience and, um, and, we're, and, and right into us at supply demand pod on Instagram. You can DM us with your uh, reactions to this episode. Uh, maybe you vehemently disagree with something we said. Uh, you think we're wrong. You think you think we're stupid. Uh, let us know. And maybe you think we're right. And you want to tell us that that would be awesome. Um, yeah, that that's what I was going to say. Thank, thank you, thank you for the patience. And uh, I don't know, I, I don't think I just speak for myself, but I'm pretty. I think we're pretty excited to be back and uh, doing this sort of thing. It's good. It's a good. Uh, it's a good way to catch up. It's a good way to explore the the possibilities of the world and of, sure. of other sorts of things. So anyway, Nate, audience question. Yeah, sure. Uh, Chris writes into the podcast and asks. Do a fall draft. What are your top five fall-related things slash activities? And I should note quickly, uh, this is being recorded and hopefully released in October. Uh, we didn't really mention that this whole topic of post-apocalyptic fiction is kind of well-suited as a Halloween, October, fall topic, but that's besides the point, I guess. Um, I'm not sure really the best way to answer this. Should we each say five things or collaboratively should we come up with five things? I think that might be that. I think us all listing five things would be inefficient so maybe we should all go around and say one thing offer one thing to the draft and then uh maybe we can agree on a last a uh, number five sure yeah, i'm sure. like to start nate hmm I, I love the fall 
Um, so it's hard to pick one. I'm going to go with the obvious one and say the weather. I think the weather is just, it's just that, it's a happy medium. That's really hard to, hard to achieve for most of the year. And the ability to just walk outside jeans and a sweatshirt, jeans and a flannel. Uh, it's just great. And like, I feel like so many activities, so many outdoor activities are just amplified in the fall when you're able to neither be cold nor sweating. Um, you know, there's active activities, there's food and drink activities. It just, it's all, you know, hiking outdoorsy stuff. It's, it's all better in that very comfortable, crisp fall weather. So that's my, definitely uh, that's my cop out easy answer, but I have to stand by it. I, I, well I, I honestly really want to agree with you because that is it. Right away, I think that one should be number one because the weather is so nice in the fall. And I, the stuff you wear in the fall is my favorite stuff to wear. But uh, we'll go, we'll go one, two, fall and jeans. <laughs> <laughs> yep. For the weather and jeans. Sorry. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, you wear, you wear jeans through the entire year, Stephen. That is, that's not accurate. It's more so the flannel. Yeah, true. I, I, I wear jeans probably more than you know. It's like eleven yeah, months out of the year. Yeah, I, I take a you know I take a month off. I I got to get some vitamin D on my legs. But uh, another thing I thought of in terms of what's good about the fall is um, the fact that football and a little bit later hockey, those the seasons of those two things start back up, which are arguably my favorite sports to watch this postseason baseball is great that's true i forgot about that that um, and there's a pretty good reason why i forgot about that <laughs> the red Sox kind of suck right now um i'm gonna say something that i never thought i would ever say before um one of the things and i discovered this today and i'm sort of realizing it now but one of the things that I sort of look forward to, and it relates both to the fall and to the clothing choice. Um, so both to, to both previous answers, the weather and the, and the clothing choice, but it's, it's um, actually the act of shopping for clothes for the fall and the winter and the impending chilly weather. Um, I went to old Navy today and I never, I'm like never excited to go shopping. I never think I need anything. I never enjoy going into the, um, changing room. I get sweaty when I get, when I go into the changing room bizarrely, cause I'm usually wearing a sweatshirt and I go in and, uh, then I'm moving around. And so it's not like a comfortable experience, um, when I think about it, but like when actually in the, in the moment today, I was looking at all the stuff. I found some jeans that I, they're just normal jeans, but I was like, it's a pair nice of jeans that fit just right. We're putting jeans just back right. on the list. <laughs> Yeah, the jeans they they fit. Um, number yeah. two jeans, number three jeans, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, sweat. I I got like a quarter zip sweatshirt today that I'm excited to, I'm excited to throw on. So it's the it's the act of shopping for clothes, which again I never thought I would say, but that's mine. That is a, that is an underdog number three. Yeah, pick. I know. You could put that number five if you want. That's, if okay. there's other, well, we'll see. We'll see. Mike, what are we working with? All right, I'm gonna take a maybe a, a sillier 
uh, maybe more of a dark horse answer here um, and go with, and maybe not because it's wrapped up in a lot of fall activities. I actually mentioned it at the very beginning of the, I don't even think we were recording at this point, but um, it's as if this particular fruit is non-existent to me for the vast majority of, of the year. And then uh, come September, it's it's probably like the only fruit I consume in, in multiple ways, but apples. I think apples really become central to my diet uh, in the fall. And it, everything apple-based just seems to taste better, be it, you know, going apple picking and, and doing the traditional fall activity uh, that integrates apples. Um, ciders both alcoholic and non-alcoholic um donuts. apple pies apple cider donuts um yeah apples just seem to i don't know if this is like a new england thing but like apples really seem to hit their stride in the fall and i think we're all better for it <laughs> for all that's of the, the that's the johnny appleseed propaganda seeping <laughs> out of your veins mike yeah it it has me hook line sinker um because i'm deeply involved with the apple community um the apple cult if you will mike they say a, <laughs> an apple a day keeps the doctor away so what are you sick throughout the yep. rest of the year come on yep i just bought a new iphone so <laughs> oh, um, oh yeah, apple i see, see I that see, see that does yep. that work do you can you loophole it like that i think so yeah, you, you can you can right. plug it into your apples um doctors strictly use androids yeah <laughs> So yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with apples. I'm gonna go with the entire fruit of apple, and all that it brings during the fall, and associated activities. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do you get? We got weather. We got jeans. We got apples. Although maybe apples. Does apple go? Apples go too. I might say apples goes too. I don't know. What do you guys? Ah, uh, it doesn't matter. Oh, that we was got, that your. Well, we don't have a five yet. We need a five. I know. You're trying to spot the holes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, was that your in order list that you just said, Greg? Wait, no, yeah. Stephen. What'd you say? You said sports. I said sports. Yeah, yeah. Sports. Greg uh, said clothes. Sports. So we've got weather, sports, clothes, and food epitomized by the apple, which mm -hmm. all of these are great. Just the apple. Let's, okay, let's yeah, not let's not take the apple with uh, any other supplementary apple. <laughs> <laughs> apple. Apple I, products. I correct. My, I correct my statement. How about this yeah. for all you young bucks out there going back to school? That's my favorite part. Well, of the I did. I realized, and Greg, maybe this is just an insult to you, but we're getting me, Mike, and Stephen are getting into the periods of our life where September no longer marks the beginning mm -hmm. of a school year. So I think that's one of the reasons why fall is so appealing because when you're a kid, the beginning of fall is actually this dreadful time where you, you know, you, you love this. The summer is so awesome because you don't have to go to school and the fall means you have to go back to school. So you're sort of, you're not really observant of all the great things about fall, but now that my job is the same spring, summer, fall, I'm much more attentive to all these things. Um, but I, there's part of me that also is nostalgic about fun fall memories from college as well. Um, mm -hmm. So there are good fall like school is a good part of fall as well i mean i think about things like 
uh, tailgates at UMass and um, well, that's one fun thing, but here's another cop out. The big answer. E. Yeah. The big E is great. Here's another cop out answer that maybe we should, we should just throw on the list and be done with it. Um, but it's just, uh, and it sort of fits in with a lot of the other ones, but sort of like just the ability to go out and have a fire in, in the afternoon on a weekend and sit around and, you know, drink a beer, sit in your, in your jeans that you just bought that day, maybe have a glass of apple cider. Um, and you're just enjoying the fall weather, you know, that's and a that, really good that, one. The fire, I had, I had a fire today. It still smell like fire. My, my hair, my hair. Still smells like smoke. I, don't, I don't know why I've no. never asked. Oh, okay. It's at my, my, uh, my yeah, parents' yeah. house. Um, but yeah, so I think that, I think, I actually, I think that's a good, I'm take, uh, no, hmm? I'm making an executive decision and I'm putting something at the number one spot for the oh. best things about fall. It's the first episode of the supply and demand podcast dropping. Oh, that's easily that was, the best thing. That was well said. Yeah, but except that only applies to this one fall. Yeah. So. Well, um, I think. Uh, well, yeah, let, that's a good place to cap this off. I agree, Stephen. Um, this is a really. Uh, this is something I'm really looking forward to. I'm glad we're doing this. This is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm really excited to see hear people's reaction to this. Um, I'm excited to get some more questions. Like I said, I think we, we touched on a lot of points in this episode. I think there's gotta be something we said that someone, you know, has a counter argument to. So lay it on us. Talk to and us. yeah, you can, you can find us. I think the best place to find us is at supply demand pod on Instagram. Um, that's because Greg set up a Twitter with his UMass email account, which doesn't exist anymore. Way to go, Greg. Yep. Um, Strike two against me. <laughs> but yeah, and thank you, Chris, for that question. Uh, we love getting uh, fan mail, and I hope that other listeners following Chris's lead uh, DM us, maybe respond to our uh, Instagram stories, give us something to talk about. And yeah, uh, find a bone to pick with our, our arguments and our topics. And uh, the the supply which we demand from the demanders. Well said, Nate. I don't think anyone, I don't think anyone could have said it better. <laughs> All right. Um, well, I think that's a wrap for us. Um, goodbye. See you. Bye, guys.